0: Part two. This
1: Good job. Good job, <laughs> yes, really.
2: My bad. <laughs> just slammed that coffee cup down on the glass table.
1: <laughs> all right, so here's the plan. Kay. This is part two. All right. um, last episode. First of all, I'm just going to go ahead and put it out there. The This is monsters in every state. Yep. Last episode, we did uh, the Bigfoots Sasquatches. We did uh, Sea Monsters, and we did... Uh, Dogs and werewolves and stuff like that. So uh, this episode, we're going to be getting into some of the flying things, uh, some of the other animals that exist in the world. Uh, There's some of the paranormal stuff and some of the oddities. Okay. So this is actually going to be like slightly more in line, uh, like as far as content-wise than uh, maybe the first part was. But we had to split it into two parts because, number one, it's a lot of information, and number two, I can't stay on track very long. <laughs> so, listen here. I'm listening. It's part two. We usually we record on, um, on Mondays, mm-hmm. and we put the episodes out on a Thursday, every other Thursday. Right. However, this one is going to be kind of, we're going to cram it in somewhere, because normally what we would do if it was a part two, we would put... We'd do, like, just the next episode would be the part two. Right. But. But next month, October, we're doing the Halloween Monster Cryptid Extravaganza.
2: Yeah, so that's next week.
1: That's next week. Is, so, uh, what, Sunday is the first?
2: Yeah, I think maybe this should come out on Monday.
1: I was going to put it out on either Sunday or Monday. Yeah. But, I don't know. Surprise! I'll I'll figure it out. It'll be a surprise. Sunday or Monday, this is going to come out. Which is not going to matter because they'll be listening, listening to, to it, it and will be in the past. <laughs> yeah. So, Anyway, so and then we're going to be doing, every week we're going to be doing different monsters. Yes. Do you have those handy or not? I got it
2: memorized now. What is it? Week one, Mothman, Flatwoods Monster. Okay. Week two, Sheepsquatch and the Grafton Monster. I hope that's correct. Week three, um, Men in Black, Black Eyed Kids, Shadow People, other entities, strange entities. Week four, not deer and windigos.
1: Yep. Are we going? Did we ever decide officially if we're going to do a Friday the Thirteenth? We didn't
2: decide, but I'm going to declare it now in this moment. Yes.
1: Yeah, we're doing so mini so so October. You're getting five episodes technically, four episodes in a mini. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So and so we can't really, we couldn't hardly like postpone part two to like no, It November. has happened now. <laughs> yeah. So. This is not only is this our first multi-part episode, but it's also like we're really cramming in a heavy recording schedule for
2: Yeah, this it's entire, so like, fun though.
1: Yeah. I like recording episodes. Anyway, Dude. the other thing is we forgot to say our name in the first one. So this yeah. we're gonna remember <laughs> to say it this time. And but not yet. This is Country Roads Creeps. But <laughs>
2: <laughs> I feel like we're sprinting right now. However, like we're going.
1: <laughs> also There, we don't have really any announcements. This other than the
2: Tell the people what we had for dinner.
1: We had Olive Garden.
2: Our fave Olive Garden,
1: our podcast
2: favorite.
1: (laughs) So I will sometimes from the podcast account comment on Olive Garden's post. I've
2: seen it on Instagram.
1: And they'll respond to us. So they Olive Garden knows who we are. Yeah. All I want is for like them to give us like a little like I don't know sponsor us Olive Garden. Yeah, like a That'd little something, something. I don't even we don't even want money, just give us Alfredo.
2: Yeah. And we'll say <laughs> it on the
1: podcast and then and it
2: No, it'd be cool if they would if they we could get like a sticker or something.
1: Like an Olive Garden sticker?
2: Yeah. I'll put it I on a water it, bottle, I'll carry it around, and show put it, it off.
1: Right here on the front or something, yeah.
2: Hmm.
1: Olive Garden, I love Olive Garden and their breadsticks and the Alfredo. Yeah. And the Yeah <laughs> Did you, so they have a, a dessert called Zapoli? and it's basically like a like a sugary bread, like they oh yeah kind of like donut texture. Mm-hmm. And they put sugar on it, and then you can get like chocolate sauce to dip it in, and that's really good. And then this year for the fall, they put out a pumpkin uh, cheesecake kind of deal. Ooh. So, so so this is what you could expect Olive Garden. Us promoting your products. we will hype you up. You did, because we are the biggest Olive Garden lovers. So. <laughs> There's no, no bigger Olive Garden lovers than us.
2: Yeah, so. just check out our Instagram. Yep. Anyway, moving on.
1: Anyway. That's it. So, oh, also, Halloween link. So, Amazon, we have a link I mentioned in the last episode. Uh, if you need anything for Halloween season, then... You can click the link on the show notes and on the uh, our Facebook page when we do the photos. Thank you for setting that down so lightly.
2: I tried to be gentle that time. <laughs> I need so, a coaster.
1: I gave you one. Well, I have Here's two drinks.
2: One. I need another coaster. Thank you. <laughs> you, know that, you know
1: that audio that's like the like the drink goblin. It's like yeah. <laughs> yeah.
2: I had three drinks at work today. I had a tea, a water, and a coffee simultaneously. <laughs>
1: oh my gosh. Anyway, Halloween, the link. Halloween link, if you need anything for Halloween season this year, uh, this entire month we'll have a link in our show notes. Oh.
2: <laughs> Are you okay? I have hiccups. <laughs> Horrible timing.
1: Um, Coffee <laughs> gives me the worst hiccups. <laughs> I don't even know why I drink it. Anyway, if you need anything for this Halloween season, this is my third attempt at saying <laughs> it. You can... You can click the link in our show notes and on <laughs> our and on our Facebook page, and uh, and it'll take you to a, like a curated thing on on Amazon that shows like all kinds of Halloween. There's all kinds of deals in there. You can get like all kinds of percentages off of stuff, costumes, makeup, uh, candies, uh, decorations. They even have like a section for stuff for your pet, so that's pretty cool. That's um, cool. And you have to buy stuff for Halloween anyway. So, if we can save you money. So, click the link, and then anything that you purchase using that link also goes directly to help us. So,
2: it's a win win. It's,
1: it's a win win win. We all win. There's four people that are going to get that office oh, reference.
2: I missed it. I like the office, but I missed the reference. Sorry. I let so you down.
1: It's on their, um, their, uh, Conflict negotiation episode.
2: Okay, I do remember now. And
1: so they're talking about like a win-win. <laughs> yeah. They're like, but there is a third option.
2: <laughs> win-win.
1: A win-win-win. <laughs> we all win. I win too. <laughs> so, um, anyway, so like I said, uh, last, last episode, part one of this, the 50 monsters in every state, we talked about the, uh, the big feet, uh, dogs and werewolves and sea monsters in this one. We're going to do flying things and other animals. And paranormal and the oddball things. So talk while I scroll down the 40 pages of notes that I have.
2: (laughs) Um, If you haven't been to Spirit Halloween yet this year, go. They have such cool stuff. We got this talking, not talking, walking zombie hand. You sit down on the floor, it plays music, and it walks itself around the house. It's so fun. It's
1: like the, the Munsters thing, right? or the Adams uh, the family, Adams family. Yeah. yeah the thing yeah
2: and they had a like a bloody hand and a, a green monster hand too we got the zombie one
1: yeah it's scary
2: <laughs> no it's not scary it's fun
1: um so the the good thing about the last thing is the last episode we we actually split it like neatly in half
2: yeah so we got we, to 25 didn't we yep
1: cool so well actually so this will be starting 25 but it's it's neat enough neat enough for government work (laughs) this is flying things are you ready Mm. okay this is where i'll cue the music
2: perfect that was my next question i was like did we skip the intro again
1: yes we did (laughs) uh we're doing flying things this is country Country roads Roads creeps
2: Creeps. (laughs) please get it together
1: oh my gosh this is it's well, so it's like a compilation kind of episode, so there's not really like a neat way to intro everything.
2: It doesn't matter, move on. <laughs> oh, we're doing it, so.
1: Uh, flying things, these are cryptids that fly. Uh, in Virginia, there's a monster called the Snallygaster.
2: I have heard of this one, but only recently since we went to Cryptid Bash, I think. Yeah,
1: they had it there and we didn't really know what it was called. Yeah, well, here I am to tell you about it. Okay, so. In Virginia, uh, the Snallygaster, this actually, so this goes back a long time on um, just a lot of, like, American folklore, actually, like, goes back to when German immigrants were coming over, Um, but the Snallygaster is a bird-reptile chimera originating in the superstitions of early German immigrants, later combined with sensationalistic newspaper reports of the monster. The area of Frederick County, Maryland, was settled by German immigrants in the 1730s. And early accounts of this describe, um, the Naligaster describe the the community being terrorized by this cryptid. And they called it, the German is uh, Schnellergeist. It's German for quick ghost. So uh, the earliest incarnations of the creature mix the half bird features of a siren with the nightmarish features of demons and ghouls. The Snallygaster was described as half reptile, half bird, having a metallic beak lined with razor-sharp teeth, occasionally alongside octopus-like tentacles. The Snallygaster was rumored to swoop silently from the sky to pick up and carry off its victims. The earliest stories claim that this monster sucked the blood of its victims. Seven pointed stars, which reportedly kept the Snallygaster at bay, can be seen painted on local barns. It has been suggested the legend was resurrected in the 19th century to frighten freed enslaved people. Uh, Newspaper accounts throughout February and March of 1909 describe encounters between local residents and a beast with enormous wings, a long pointed bill, claws like steel hooks, and an eye in the center of its forehead. It was described as making screeches like a locomotive whistle. Uh, A great deal of publicity Surrounded this string of appearances with the Smithsonian Institution, offering a reward for its hide. U.S. President Theodore Roosevelt reportedly considered postponing an African safari to personally hunt the beast. No way. Heck yeah. (laughs) Uh, So this one had to go in last place, uh, just because it it seems like one of those European folktales that was brought over by immigrants and then it just kept getting added to and added yeah. to until it was like this amalgamation of all kinds of different mm-hmm. myths. And it's just totally unrealistic.
2: It does sound pretty scary though. I think like, I would like to know more about that one on a deep dive.
1: Yeah. It, I mean, it would be pretty cool to do a deep dive on it, mm-hmm. especially being like kind of from the area. Yeah. Um. But uh, it, so it's, it's kind of just became like this really unrealistic depiction of something that could have been really cool mm-hmm. in my opinion. At least like the stuff where it's like, oh, it's it was half bird, half demon, and now it also has octopus tentacles. Hmm. And also it's like it's transparent. (laughs) Like I'm into it. Anyway. It
2: sounds scary and cool.
1: Um so also it's supposedly Virginia's most common monster story, but it originated in Maryland. So Virginia just stole it. um, which is lame. You'll Um, have that. And it's not even the most popular thing in Maryland because that sea monster is Chessie. Yeah. So, it's like, I mean, second place in everyone's book, I guess.
2: It's a cool concept, like, that's the seven-pointed stars would keep it away. That's interesting.
1: Yeah, so they paint them on barns and stuff. Yeah. Which, around here, all we have painted on barns are, like, those uh, pouch tobacco.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't know if you've noticed lately, but a lot of those have been turned into, like, anti-tobacco advertisements. I've started seeing a lot of them have been repainted to, like, say no to vaping and things like that. That's lame. No, it's not lame. It's cool.
1: Chew tobacco leaves, Don't kids. do
2: that. It's bad for you.
1: It's Whatever. <laughs> uh, in New Jersey, the, they have got the, guess what?
2: The Jersey Devil.
1: Yes, the Jersey Devil. Nice. Uh, so in South Jersey and Philadelphia folklore... Uh, the Jersey Devil, also known as the Leeds Devil, is a legendary creature said to inhabit the forest of the Pine Barrens in South Jersey. Uh, the creature is often described as a flying biped with hooves, but there's a lot of variations to that. So, common descriptions are of a bipedal kangaroo or wyvern-like creature with a horse or goat-like head, uh, leathery bat wings, horns, small arms with clawed hands, uh, legs with cloven hooves, and forked or pointed tail. It has been reported to move quickly and is often described as emitted a high-pitched blood-curdling scream. So the Lenape people, who originally populated the Pine Barrens, believe the area was inhabited by a spirit called, uh, so it's M-Sing. I don't know how to pronounce that. M-Sing?
2: Sure, sounds like sync.
1: Tell me why. (laughs) Uh, Nice.
2: Imsing. Imsing,
1: which sometimes took the form of a deer-like creature with leathery wings. According to popular folklore, the Jersey Devil originated with a Pine Barren's resident named Jane Leeds, known as the Mother Leeds. Uh, The legend states that Mother Leeds had 12 children, and after discovering she was pregnant for the 13th time... Cursed the child in frustration, declaring that the child would be the devil. And In 1735, Mother Leeds was in labor on a stormy night while her friends gathered around her. Born a normal child, the thirteenth child transformed into a creature with hooves, a goat's head, bat's wings, and a forked tail. Growling and screaming, the child beat everyone with its tail before flying up the chimney and heading into the pines. In some versions of the tale, Mother Leeds was supposedly a witch, and the child's father was the devil himself. Some versions of the legend also state that a local clergyman subsequently attempted to exorcise the creature from the pine barrens, which is like uh, he took a treadmill out there and uh, ran really, really hard, <laughs> exercised it out of the <laughs> out of the woods. Funny.
2: Um, I wanted to wait until you finished that sentence. That song you were singing was Backstreet Boys, not In Sync. Oh no! (laughs) Yeah, I want it that way as my Backstreet Boys. But I was so caught off guard by you singing that it took me a second to realize wrong boy band. Man, (laughs) you gotta leave it in though. (laughs) You, I I wish you guys could see Shane's face right now. You look so defeated. It's
1: so. (laughs) That's so sad. What kind of songs did NSYNC write the same exact songs?
2: I mean, yeah, it was similar music. It's boy band music. But what you were singing is I Want It That Way by Backstreet Boys.
1: I want it that way. Um, <clears throat> According to legend, while visiting the Hanover <laughs> Mill works to inspect his cannonballs being forged, Commodore Stephen Decatur sighted a flying creature and fired a cannonball directly upon it. To no effect. So, post this, there's a bunch of other sightings. Mm-hmm. Not, this probably deserves its own like kind of deep dive because it's a really big, famous monster mystery. Yeah. Uh, but, the, just so you know, there's a bunch of other sightings of this. We're fast forwarding to uh, the week of January 16th through the 23rd of 1909. The newspapers published hundreds of claimed encounters with the Jersey Devil from all over South Jersey and the Philadelphia area. Among these alleged encounters were claims the creature attacked a trolley car in Haddon Heights, a social club in Camden, and police in Camden and Bristol, Pennsylvania, supposedly fired on the creature to no effect. Skeptics believe the Jersey Devil to be nothing more than a creative manifestation upon imaginations of the early English settlers in South Jersey, with plausible natural explanations including the Boogeyman stories, Created and told by bored Pine Barren residents as a form of children's entertainment. Uh, the byproduct of historical local disdain for the Leeds family, uh, misidentification of known animals and rumors based on common negative perceptions of the local population of the Pine Barrens known as pioneers Um, so the, the Pine Barrens was considered to be in inho- inhospitable land and there were robbers and highwaymen, um, like surrounded this area that would right like mess with people, mm-hmm. so not to really get into the big history behind the area, but, um, I mean, I do want to do like a full episode eventually on the Jersey Devil, yeah, that'd be good. but, one. um, just so you know like that's the that's kind of the deal. I'm like touching the the foamy on the mic so it's gonna <laughs> pick it up.
2: oh my gosh, Shane just knocked his whole mic stand over. <laughs> we are having trouble today. Because this is not a regular recording day. Yeah, I know. Everything's out of sorts.
1: <laughs> I can't believe I didn't know the song.
2: Yeah, that's gonna be in your mind for the whole rest of this. I shouldn't have told you. I should have just let it, let it go.
1: <laughs> yeah, but then people would make fun of me online, and they would be like, "They
2: would make fun of both of us if neither of us corrected it." I had to. Tell me why. <laughs>
1: um, in New Mexico. Okay. They've got a monster, a flying monster, in fact, Mm -hmm. called
0: the Teratorns. Mm -hmm.
1: Teratorn, Terator, hang on, Teratornithidae, that's a scientific word, Teratornithidae. The
2: the cryptid has a scientific name.
1: Is an extinct family of very large birds of prey Oh. (laughs) that lived in North and South America from the late... Oligocene to the late Pleistocene. Uh, they include some of the largest known flying birds. Teratornithidae are related to the New World vultures, uh, which is Cathartidae. Um, well, that's their family. Uh, so far, at least seven species in six uh, genera have been identified. So, this is a real bird that exists out in the world um so it actually is hard to find stories uh in new mexico for this one specifically because they're kind of all spread out and everything mainly the legends say these birds aren't actually extinct but they still fly and they're able to snatch children and animals off the ground Uh, i think a lot of it is tied to native american mythology and the fact that they found skeletons and fossils of these huge birds keeps the idea alive that they might still exist. Um, part of the, part of the other thing is that they, so the, the native Americans were finding fossils at the time of these gigantic birds. And they're like, well, these are our, like, these are the spirits that are out there in the world. And they, they have, um, like, uh, what do you call like a uh, specific birds that exist in certain directions of the wind and calls wind oh, okay. and stuff like that. Hmm. Um, there was one, I think that I will get into it in a little bit, but, uh, I'll get in a little bit more detail on the native American legend of it all and another one, but, uh, just, this is where this kind of originates at. Um, the, the fact that, like, they might still exist kind of seems implausible to me, because the sky is completely open. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, it, it's not like there's stuff to hide behind like there is in the forest for, say, like, a Bigfoot.
2: I mean, they could be in, like, living in this cave in a cliffside somewhere.
1: They could be. And you don't um, know. <laughs> but they would still have to fly around eventually, which means you would see them, right?
2: Unless they're just stealthy.
1: so one explanation was that the sightings are just people misidentifying eagles or actual modern vultures yeah and because of the distance in the air it's kind of hard to estimate size um i suppose the reverse could be true that people are actually seeing the huge non-existent territorians flying around and again because of the distance in the air they think they're they might actually be smaller than they really are. Yeah. They might be eagles or something. So. Yeah. That's. I
0: mean,
1: <laughs> it's. So the Territorns thing is like a. I don't know. You, you would expect like if they were flying around you would see them.
2: Yeah. I guess. But I want to believe.
1: You want to believe.
2: <laughs> I want to believe.
1: Uh, up next we got a pretty cool one from Iowa. This is the Van Meter Monster. Um, 120 years ago. A strange creature was said to have paid a visit to the small town of Van Meter in Iowa. Strange events occurred on October, or sorry in October of 1903. Several respected members of the community told of a mysterious winged creature that terrorized some of the town's residents during several nights in the course of the week. Descriptions of the beast suggest that it had a large bat, uh, it had large bat-like wings and left a terrible stench wherever it went. And even stranger, it fired beams of bright light from its forehead. The the bizarre account recalls how several of the locals attempted to shoot the beast, but the gunfire didn't appear to have any effect. Fed up with the menace, a group of townsfolk banded together one evening and pursued the creature to an abandoned coal mine. There they confronted not one, but two of the beasts which both turned and disappeared down into the gloom of the mine as the men opened fire, fire, and they were never seen again. Weird. It is weird. And that's pretty much the entire story of that. They were never seen again. There was never, I mean. That's sad. don't really know. They could still be sitting at the bottom of the mine. You know, you would never know.
2: Yeah.
1: It's kind of sad, I guess. Mm -hmm. They were a couple. So next up, <laughs> the North Dakota, the Thunderbird. This is the one I get into a little bit more detail on the, the myths. I've stuff. heard
2: of this one. Uh,
1: the Thunderbirds are legendary creatures, uh, in particular the North American indigenous people's histories and cultures. Uh, it's considered a supernatural being of power and strength. Uh, it's especially important... And frequently depicted in the art songs and oral histories of many Pacific Northwest coast cultures. Um, but it's also found in various forms among people of the American Southwest, East Coast of the United States, Great Lakes, and the Great Plains, um, Native American tribes. So, in modern times, it has achieved notoriety as a reported cryptid. The Thunderbird is said to create thunder by flapping its wings in the Algonquin uh, myths, and lightning by flashing its eyes in both the Algonquin and the Iroquois myths. So, in uh, the Algonquin mythology, the Thunderbird controls the upper world, while the underworld is governed by the underwater panther or the great horned serpent. The Thunderbird creates uh, not just thunder with its wings flapping, but the lightning bolts, like I said, uh, by blinking its eyes, um and it casts those thunderbolts at the underworld creatures so there's actually so speaking of the the great horned serpent there's um there's actually a lot of myths in not only like native american cultures but like the ancient ancient uh, kind of like sumerian area or like middle eastern area there's all kind of like e- egyptian ancient egyptian theology and stuff has like a bird who's, like, the good guy versus the snake, who's, like, the bad guy, or vice versa. Well, it kind of makes
2: sense. I mean, it seems like like snakes are usually depicted as being the bad guy.
1: Yeah, well, so that's one of the things, is that in a lot of, like, more Western religion, modern religions, um, Judaism and... um, Islam, I believe, and Christianity, the serpent is the bad one. Right. But there's actually a lot of the ancient religions where the serpent is the good guy. Um, and like really? I said, vice versa. There's, mm-hmm. like, the great horned serpent is in the underworld, and the thunderbird casts lightning bolts at it.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But then some in the Middle East believe that, or like in Egypt and stuff, believe that the serpent was actually the good guy. And... You know, they fought, had this big story where they fought and then the eagle or the big bird or whatever it is actually won out.
2: Oh, I didn't so, know all that.
1: So I've heard some stuff like that. It'd be something that I don't know, it's not really in the scope of like our show, but No,
2: just maybe like outside of this just
1: Research like- it on your own.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh Thunderbirds in uh in the Algonquin tradition are depicted as uh like a spread eagled bird so like all the wings straight out making no one can see me but i'm holding my arm straight out <laughs> um so the wings are horizontal with the head uh profile is like sideways and uh it's also common with the fed the head facing forward and it makes kind of like an X shape on the on their drawings and stuff of it so the the Ojibwe version of the myth states that Thunderbirds were created by Nanabozo to fight the underwater spirits. The Thunderbirds also punished humans who broke moral rules. The Thunderbirds lived in the four directions and arrived with the other birds in the springtime. In the fall, they migrated south after the end of the underwater spirit's most dangerous season. Um, The uh, Minomini Of the northern Wisconsin area, tell of a great mountain that floats in the western sky on which dwell the thunderbirds. They control the rain and hail and delight in fighting and deeds of greatness. They are the enemies of the great horned snakes, um, and they have prevented these from overrunning the earth and devouring humankind. They are messengers of the great sun himself. So I don't know if the sun is. In their culture, like a like the sun, as like it sits in the sky, and like how kind of we look at it, or if the sun is a like an actual spirit in their culture. But anyway, I have no idea. This gets first place because of all the rich culture and history. Yeah, in it. Um, and also the fact that the native tribes have the stories. Uh, about this and they're extremely similar kind of leads me to think that it's probably something real, like mm-hmm. maybe like a pterosaur or like pterodactyl or something yeah. that they found fossils of. And that's where the myths originated from that. These are these big birds that, you know, have been, they, they've existed and they've actually seen some stuff point. that makes these myths up mm-hmm. for them. So, um, The van meter monster was actually a close second just because of cool factor. Yeah. But Thunderbirds had to win out. So there's that. Stop
2: Thunderbirds.
1: So getting into our second subject for today. (laughs) Other animals. Hmm, This is actually actually one of my favorite sections. Hmm. Believe it or not. In Maine... They have an animal called the specter moose. And the specter moose was first seen in 1891 by a hunting guide near Lobster Lake in Maine. Uh, The specter moose also sighted twice again, the second time in which the specter moose had been shot at by a hunter who fired slugs at him. And he said the slugs had no effect and bounced off, and the moose charged at him.
2: Oh, that would be awful.
1: And so, which... I, I've heard plenty of hunting stories My yeah. day. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm willing to bet that that's, like, his story of, like, a shot and a missed.
2: Oh, but he didn't want to but say But
1: actually, it was an albino moose that... <laughs>
2: <It> was bulletproof.
1: <laughs> yeah, so...
2: And it charged at me.
1: Yeah. Um, the next year, a New York sportsman named Howard Van Ness was hunting. He shot the moose, who he described as weighing a ton, being as tall as a camel, with magnificent antlers, the moose had not been affected and again came at Van Ness. The moose was not seen again until 1895 when a taxidermist spotted the moose, the moose was not seen yet again until 1899 where Gilman Brown saw the moose and counted 22 points on each side of its antlers, and normal moose or meese only have 8-12 to 12 points.
2: Meese, Shane.
1: Isn't that what it is? No. Like geese. No. Moose and a geese. No, sir. And a moose and a meese.
2: No. Yes. It's like deer. Deer and deer, moose and
1: moose. Geese. (laughs) You're not going to tell me that doesn't make sense.
2: I'm not saying it doesn't make sense. I'm just saying it's incorrect.
1: Nope. (laughs) So.
2: All right. (laughs) In (laughs) sync.
1: Um. So the the spectre moose actually could just be a peabald moose or an albino moose.
2: Um, I want to be a believer on this story too. I like the idea of the bulletproof big albino moose.
1: Yeah. So I want that I, to be real. I just think that's another hunting story.
2: I mean, probably, but goodness gracious, can't we just pretend?
1: Um. So there's actually a in uh in the video game. Red Dead Redemption 2.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, there you get to, you can like go out in like big swaths of wilderness and hunt. Yeah. Um, and they have like a whole hunting mechanic in the game. But there's a part of the game where you hunt like legendary animals <laughs> or whatever. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and so the moose, it's like an albino moose. That's actually one of them, but I don't know if they call it the specter moose, but it's like an albino elk or an albino yeah. moose or something that you get to hunt. And so it's kind of neat
2: bullets bounce off of it in the game?
1: No. Hmm. Um, but there actually is a Bigfoot in the game. Oh, so that's cool. there's a Bigfoot in the first one that you actually talk to. Yeah. And like, like you go hunting for him and he's like, I'm just trying to live my life, man. It's like, yeah, he can actually speak English to you. That's kind of funny. funny. And then in the Red Dead Redemption 2, you find like a, it's a, uh, like a, not a skeleton, but like the corpse of a Bigfoot. And it's kind of like a sad little reference to the previous yeah. game where mm-hmm. we got to talk to him. So, anyway, uh, next up, Beast of Busco in Indiana. The Beast of Busco is an enormous snapping turtle, which citizens claim to have seen in 1949. Despite a month-long hunt that briefly gained national attention, the Beast of Busco was never found. So, in 1898. A farmer named Oscar Folk uh, claimed to have seen a giant turtle living in the seven-acre lake on his farm in uh, Churubusco, Indiana. He told others about it, but eventually he decided to drop the matter. Uh, Half a century later, in 1948, two Churubusco citizens, Ora Blue and Charlie Wilson, also reported seeing a huge turtle weighing an estimated 500 pounds while fishing on the same lake, uh, which had come to be known as Falk Lake. A farmer named Gail Harris owned the land at the time. Harris and others also reported seeing the creature and word spread. In early 1949, a UPI reporter from Fort Wayne sent the story out on the wire services and the turtle became nationally famous. Curious mobs of sightseers began to invade Harris's land, forcing state police to be called in for traffic control. And after many doubted the existence of the turtle, Harris made several attempts to catch the beast, including draining the lake by pumping the water into an area sealed off by a dam with the help of Orville Bright and Kenneth Leitch, only for the dam to break when the lake had almost been entirely drained. But despite many attempts, Oscar, named after the original owner of the farm, was never captured. So they call the the turtle Oscar.
2: That's cute. I like that. Good name. There has to be something to that one if they drained a whole lake for it. There's got to be some truth there.
1: March of 1949, an attempt to send a deep sea diver into the pond failed when the wrong equipment was delivered to the Harris farm. And a photographer for Life magazine, Mike Shea, took 299 photos at the site, but they were deemed uh, unusable. Why? (laughs) That's <laughs> just dumb.
2: It's like a, a fire at the courthouse kind of yeah, scenario. It
1: is. So, okay. um, Oscar's memory, the, the turtle. Oscar's memory lives on in Churubusco's Turtle Days festival held each June. It includes a parade, carnival, and turtle races. A turtle shell labeled Beast of Busco also hangs in the Two Brothers restaurant in Decatur, Indiana. And a small concrete statue of a turtle sits on the sidewalk at the main intersection in the center of Churubusco. The Beast of Busco features in Metazoo, a cryptozoology collectible themed card game released in 2020. So, that's kind of neat.
2: What was the, the game?
1: Uh, it's called Metazoo.
2: Oh, that's cool. We'll have to look into that.
1: It's kind of... There's actually a lot of... Um, I'm like losing my mind. Hang on. When I like... I wonder if I can, like, mute myself for a minute. Hang on. Talk uh, talk a second. Okay.
2: Uh, Shane's struggling with his mic. He's doing some adjustments. Oh, that's so loud. (laughs) That squeak. Turn yourself back on.
1: What? Could you hear that the whole time?
2: Oh, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Well, that's... I mean, it wasn't horrible, but...
1: I hit mute on my thing. I mean, my
2: mic picked it up. Oh, okay. Yeah.
1: It was Hannah's fault then. (laughs)
2: You should have muted us both. No, um. Cut that out. Cut that out.
1: No, I'm leaving it in.
2: <laughs> hey, remember when we filmed our introduction video before this and we yeah. said just two absolute disasters trying to make a podcast? Yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. we're really living up to that this time around.
1: I feel like that, uh, who was it like Bill O'Reilly when he had that meltdown and he was like, F it, we'll do it live.
0: <laughs> I
2: don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm going to get that as like a clip. Oh my for gosh! Our, our soundboard.
2: <laughs> We're gonna make it through. It's fine.
1: No, Metazoo is like a. It's like a cryptozoology. It's kind of like Pokemon, I guess. You oh, collect cool. the little. Collect the little uh, guys, uh-huh. and then, um, and then you just have. But they're like actual, like they're cryptids and stuff. So That's
2: pretty cool. I like. That. I
1: think there's there's a few on here that they had mentioned it, but I just thought that, that was cool because it's like a turtle. Yeah. And he's the guy. So.
2: Um, While you're drinking your coffee, I'll talk about this game that Dirk and I got. There's there's several versions of it. So I think the original is just called Horrified, but we have Horrified American Monsters. And it's a cooperative game, so you play together against the board almost. And it's so much fun. You have these different characters in our game. I can't remember all of them. I'll try. But you have Mothman, the Jersey Devil, um, something Howler a Banshee, Bigfoot, and another cryptid that I can't think of right now. But you have to, you're playing as the townspeople and as these investigators against the cryptids and they're trying to take over the town. And it is so much fun. And while you were talking about some of these, it was making me think about that game. That's really cool. It is so fun. And you can, you, it's different every time you play depending on which cryptids you play with. It's so like one game you might play with the Mothman and, um, The Ozark Cowler is what it was called. Or the next game you might play with Bigfoot and the Banshee and something else. And it changes every time. Very fun.
1: Yeah, we should play that.
2: Yeah, we will. It's good. Um, um, I think in the original Horrified, it has more classic monsters like Frankenstein, Vampire, or Dracula. That kind of stuff. Right. So it's probably a little bit different gameplay, but maybe similar concept.
1: Huh. Well, in Wyoming, they've got the Jackalope.
2: The jackalope! Yeah. I know this one. I
1: love the jackalope. Me too! So the jackalope is a mythical animal of North American folklore described as a jackrabbit with antelope horns. And the word jackalope is actually a portamento. Port- Port- Portamento. That's a type of cheese, isn't it? No, that's pimento. Cheese.
2: I know the- Like, I can see the word in my brain right now that you're trying to say, but I don't port, know how to pronounce it.
1: Portmanteau.
2: I've only seen it written. I don't think I've ever heard it said out loud, Ort- so I can't help you. Portman I think that's close.
1: It's, uh, it's jackrabbit and antelope. switched <laughs> together. <laughs> so, many um, jackalope taxidermy mounts, uh, including the original, are actually just made with deer antlers, not even yeah. antelope. So, uh, in the 1930s, Douglas Herrick and his brother, hunters uh, with taxidermy skills, popularized the American jackalope by grafting deer antlers onto a jackrabbit carcass and selling the combination to a local hotel in Douglas, Wyoming. Thereafter, they made and sold many similar jackalopes to a retail isla in South Dakota, and another taxidermist continues to manufacture the horned rabbits in the 21st century. Um, stuffed and mounted, jackalopes are found in a bunch of bars and other places in the United States. They actually have one at the Logans that we've been to. Oh, really? Yeah. Or, no, actually. I the, haven't been in there in a long not time. At the Logans. The, uh... Uh... Texas. Texas. Yeah. Texas, I
2: remember oh. now. I haven't been in there in so long.
1: Yeah. Um, so jackrabbits are actually hares, not rabbits. Do you know what the difference is?
2: Hares are bigger. But I don't know all the... Specific
1: details. Well, because, like, you can, you can say, like, hey, there's a hare in my rabbit stew, but you can't say there's a rabbit in my hair stew.
2: Get out.
1: Um, the difference is that hares are um, larger in size. They've got longer ears and longer hind legs. And they also tend to live alone or in pairs in above-ground nests, whereas rabbits often live together in groups of up to 20 in underground uh-huh. tunnels known as warrens. So that's the difference. Now you know. (laughs) Uh, Stories or descriptions of animal hybrids have appeared in many cultures worldwide. A 13th century Persian work depicts a rabbit with a single horn, like a unicorn. In Europe, the horned rabbit appears in medieval and renaissance folklore in Bavaria. And it's called the the Wolpertinger. Cute. There's a few other places in Europe that have
0: this.
1: <laughs> um, anyway, natural history texts such as History Naturalis de Quadrupedibus Libri. Uh, that's, I guess, Latin for the history book of natural quadrangles. But I wanted to try to say it.
0: Yeah.
1: <laughs> I can't. Um, uh, so that was in the 17th century. And illustrations such as Animalia uh, Quadrupedia." Et, reptilia. Uh, in the like 1600s, 16th century, um, included the horned hare. These early scientific texts described and illustrated hybrids as though they were real creatures. But by the end of the 18th century, scientists generally rejected the idea that horned hares were actually real animals. Um, in Wyoming, though. Uh, the New York Times actually attributes the American jackalope's origin to a 1932 hunting outing, which is what I described in the beginning. Where uh, so Douglas Herrick and his brother were hunting rabbits, and uh, they had also studied taxidermy. Actually, it says it says they actually studied taxidermy by mail. I don't know how you do that, <laughs> but um. Oh. They studied it by mail order as teenagers.
2: Interesting. Um,
1: and when they returned from a hunting trip for those the rabbits or from jackrabbits, uh, he just tossed the the carcass um, into the into the taxidermy store, mm-hmm. and it fell next to a pair of deer antlers. And he was like, "Well, that looks cool." <laughs> so then the jackalope was born. Good old so, jackalope. Uh, the accidental combination of the animal forms. Sparked Herrick's idea for the jackalope, and the first jackalope the brothers put together was sold for $10 to Roy Ball, who displayed it in Douglas Labonte Hotel. The mounted head was stolen in 1977, and the jackalope became a popular local attraction in Douglas, where the Chamber of Commerce issues jackalope hunting licenses to tourists.
0: (laughs) That's funny. Uh,
1: So the tags are good for hunting during (laughs) official jackalope season, which occurs for... Only one day, (laughs) on June 31st.
2: Oh my god! Which is
1: a non-existent date.
2: That's funny.
1: June only has 30 days. Mm -hmm. And it lasts from midnight to (laughs) 2am. The hunter must have an IQ greater than 50, but not over 72. (laughs) And thousands of licenses, quote unquote, have been issued. In Herrick's hometown of Douglas, there's an 8-foot statue of a jackalope. And the town hosts an annual Jackalope Days celebration in early June.
2: That's so funny.
1: So, I'm what going to read that? this uh, from you or for you from this is Wyoming's like DNR official website. Oh my God. And they list I'm
2: so excited.
1: They list the jackalope on there as like a real animal. Yeah. Or Like they, they gave it its own write up as right. if it was real. That's awesome. And so, I'll read this to you. So jackalope are often observed in the short grass plains of the greater uh, Neobrara County area with less frequent sightings in the sagebrush basins of central and southwest Wyoming. Often described as an antlered or horned rabbit, specimens were first collected and prepared by the Herrick brothers of Douglas, Wyoming, local taxidermists. Uh, So jackalope are often most sighted at night typically around closing time near adult beverage establishments, the preferred habitat of the species. Weekend sightings are much more common than during weekdays. It is reported but unconfirmed that jackalope are attracted to the odor of a fine single malt.
2: (laughs) That's really funny.
1: (laughs) Unlike most uh, leperids, that's rabbits and hares, Uh Jackalope have a low reproductive rate, <laughs> owing to the fact they breed only during summer lightning strikes, despite their ability to sing like a fine tenor. <laughs> Young are produced very infrequently, but apparently often enough for the species' persistence. Given their secret of nature and unknown population status, there is currently, currently no open season for the species in Wyoming. Jackalope fall victim to a host of predators, including coyotes, bobcats, eagles, chupacabras, web-footed wookalars, and the <laughs> Cherokee devil. <laughs> Rabbits and hares infected with papilloma papillomavirus, which produce horn-like tumors on the head of the infected animal, should not be mistaken for this wonderfully unique Wyoming species. Oh, Wink wink.
2: That's so funny. I wish they were real.
1: Um. So this gets first place for obvious reasons.
2: Yeah, that's super amazing. Cool.
1: And they like acknowledge it, like it's a real thing. Yeah, and
2: everybody's they in jokes about it. it. That's hilarious.
1: And the hunting licenses. Yeah. Um. The specter moose. I want to point out didn't come in last place for lack of trying. It's <laughs> still a cool story. <laughs> yeah. But somebody had to come in last place. Yeah. And I think the turtle is a cool story. hmm And also pretty realistic. So the turtle is like. I mean, turtles live for forever.
2: Yeah, a long time.
1: And they can get pretty big.
2: Yeah, for sure.
1: Um, I don't know about snapping turtles, but I'm assuming like, I mean, as long as you have the food supply and as long as you have the right environment and the turtle's oh, going to really? live for a long time, I think it could get pretty big. Yeah. So, but the jackalopes, so there's actually this this disease, um, Shope's papillomavirus. It does actually make um horn like tumors grow on rabbits' heads. That's sad. And so they, they think that all of these stories of the like throughout the entire history
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's what it is, is that yeah. these these rabbits actually have this disease. So it's pretty sad. Yeah it is. So anyway, we're getting into the paranormal Yeah. So
0: Spooky.
1: Yawn, you need to say something. <laughs>
2: spooky. Um, I was changing my bulletin board at school today for to get it ready for October. And I put we're reading spooky good books and I like, put put a bunch of O's in it. And I thought that was really funny. And the kid not a single kid laughed when I told him what I was doing. They just looked at me and I said, Okay, never mind.
1: So in Kentucky. <laughs> <Is
2: that it? laughs> and I was like, all right. I mean, I thought that was kind of fun, because like ghosts, they're like, okay.
1: I mean, yeah, it's whatever. Yes. <laughs> in Kentucky. You've got oh, wow. All right. You all right?
2: I'm good. I tried to lean away from the mic, but that was a strong one.
1: <laughs> yeah. In Kentucky, you've got the Kelly Little Green Men.
2: That sounds exciting. Have <laughs> you ever heard of this? I don't think so. I'm picturing, like, the little plastic army men toys.
1: So this is the—I'm going to tell you the story of the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter, also known as the Hopkinsville Goblins case or the Kelly Green Men case. You okay? Yeah. We both can't stop fidgeting with our mics today, Kelly. No, this
2: is just—we're really out of our routine.
1: This is really—and it's going to be impossible to, like, actually edit all this out, so—
2: Sorry, listeners. Sorry.
1: Sorry. Sorry, listeners, for making all the the noise. So,
2: I'm gonna try not to move it again.
1: Okay, I'm good. You good? All right. So, the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter was a claimed close encounter with extraterrestrial.
2: Oh, take a breath. Please try that again. <laughs> that was crazy.
1: <laughs> you, ever, you ever have a situation where like you're just, you're, your brain wants to make the sounds, but your mouth won't do it?
2: All the time, yeah. <laughs> Especially by the end of the week. I'm so tired. My brain's not working anymore.
1: Oh try gosh. again. You got it. The Kelly Hopkinsville encounter was a claimed close encounter with extraterrestrial beings in 1955 near the communities of Kelly and Hopkinsville in Christian County, Kentucky. UFOlogists regard it as one of the most significant and well-documented cases in the history of UFO incidents, while skeptics say the reports were due to the effects of excitement, (laughs) which is a pretty stupid excuse, and misidentification of natural phenomena such as meteors and owls. The United States Air Force classified the alleged incident as a hoax in the Project Blue Book files. So, which, by the way, Project Blue Book, we're going to be doing an episode. Oh, I moment.
2: assumed as soon as you said it. I was like, yeah, we're doing that.
1: So, any, anything that the government has that's, like, labeled Project... We're doing it. Is, is <laughs> like... So, number one, that's a conspiracy, and they did some messed up stuff. And Number two, everything that they say is a hoax actually happened, so...
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, psychologists have used the alleged incident as an academic example of pseudoscience to help students distinguish from a uh, truth from fiction. So, that's pretty neat anyway. On the evening of August 21st, 1955, five adults and seven children arrived at the Hopkinsville police station, claiming that small alien creatures from a spaceship were attacking their farmhouse, and that they had been holding them off with gunfire for nearly four hours. The two adults, Elmer Sutton and Billy Ray Taylor, claimed that they had been shooting a few At a few short, dark figures who repeatedly popped up at the doorway or peered into windows, the Kentucky New Era, the first paper to report the incident, amplified the number to 12 to 15. And that number continues to be reported. Hmm. Uh, Concerned about a possible gun battle between local citizens, four city police officers, five state troopers, Three deputy sheriffs and four military police officers from the nearby United States Army Fort Campbell drove to the Sutton Farmhouse located near the town of Kelly in Christian County. Their search yielded nothing apart from evidence of gunfire and holes in window and door screens made by firearms. The family's claims received widespread coverage in local and national press. Early articles did not refer to little green men. The collar was later added to some of the newspaper stories, and estimates of the size of the alleged creatures varied from two to four feet, and details such as large pointed ears, claw-like hands, eyes that glowed yellow, and spindly legs later appeared in various media. Psychologists Rodney Schmaltz and Scott Lillenfield cite the alleged incident as an example of pseudoscience, and an extraordinary claim to help students develop critical thinking skills although contemporary newspaper stories alleged that all officials appeared to agree that there was no drinking involved. Schmaltz and Lillenfield suggest their intoxication may have, been, uh, may have played a part in the sightings. A Committee for Skeptical Inquiry member and skeptic, Joe Nickel, notes that the family could have mis- misidentified eagle owls or great horned owls, which are nocturnal, fly silently, have yellow eyes, and aggressively defend their nests. According to Nickel, meteor sightings also occurred at the time that could explain Billy Ray Taylor's claim that he saw a bright light streak across the sky and disappear beyond the tree line some distance from the house. Author Brian Dunning noted that the height of the owls would be compared to at least the lower end of the reported range, around two feet. So those great horned owls are about two feet tall. So, um, there are simply, this is a quote, um, there are simply too many similarities between the creatures reported by the families and an aggressive pair of the local great horned owls, which do stand about two thirds of a meter tall. So, that's hmm. that. UFOlogists say this is a really good account of aliens because none of the officers or investigators found any evidence of a hoax. But the similarities with the owls explain away all of that. And that's last place because this is so dumb.
2: Yeah, it's kind of a letdown.
1: Just owls. Like,
2: I mean, owls are scary on their own, though. They're creepy. They're cool, but they're spooky.
1: Yeah, I guess so. I mean, it's it's whatever. Like, have you just, ever
2: seen an owl staring at you at night? No, it's unsettling. <laughs> I don't like uh, it.
1: In Mississippi, the Pascagoula River aliens. So, the Pascagoula abduction was an alleged UFO sighting and alien abduction in 1973 in which Charles Hickson and Calvin Parker claimed they were abducted by aliens while fishing near Pascagoula, Mississippi. On the evening of October 11, 1973, 42-year-old Charles Hickson and 19-year-old Calvin Parker told the Jackson County, Mississippi Sheriff's Office they were fishing off a pier on the west bank of the Pascagoula River in Mississippi when they heard a whirring or whizzing sound, saw two flashing blue lights, and observed an oval-shaped object 30 to 40 feet across and 8 to 10 feet high. Parker and Hickson claimed they were conscious but paralyzed, while the three creatures with robotic slit mouths and crab-like pincers took them aboard the object and subjected them to an examination.
2: Shane's doing pincers with his hands he's while he's telling this story.
1: <laughs> crab hands.
2: Crab hands. Claws.
1: So, big, meaty, <laughs>
0: <claws. Close. laughs>
1: Uh Following the incident, Hickson gave interviews and lectures, appeared on television, including an episode of the game show To Tell the Truth and in 1974 claimed additional encounters with aliens, and in 1983 authored a self-published book, UFO Contact at Pascagoula, and Parker later attended UFO conventions, and in 1993 started a company called UFO Investigations to produce television stories about UFOs. Aviation journalist and UFO skeptic Philip J. Class found discrepancies in Hickson's story, noted that Hickson refused to take a polygraph exam conducted by an experienced examiner and concluded that the case was a hoax. Skeptical investigator Joe Nickel wrote that Hickson's behavior was questionable and that Hickson later altered or embellished his claims. Nickel speculated that Hickson may have fantasized about the alien encounter during a hypnagogic walking dream state and, um... Suggested that Parker's corroboration of the tale was likely due to suggestibility because he initially told police that he had passed out at the beginning of the incident and failed to regain consciousness until it was over. A claim supported by Hickson during his to tell the truth appearance.
2: It's awfully convenient.
1: It is awfully convenient. Mm-hmm. So there's there's literally only one reason that this actually like beat out the little green men. And it's because the, so th- this guy, he's been telling the story for years and he actually went and like convinced all of these like TV producers and stuff to give him his own show. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, he gets brownie points for that, I guess, Yeah. but still super dumb. I down. it. Um, in Rhode Island, there's the Mercy Brown Vampire.
2: Ooh, we haven't talked about a vampire really yet.
1: No, we haven't. So, in Exeter, Rhode Island, several members of George and Mary Brown's family suffered a sequence of tuberculosis infections in the final two decades of the 19th century. Tuberculosis was called consumption at the time and was devastating and much feared disease. Why did they, do you know why they call it consumption?
2: Uh, Because it consumes you.
1: Are you just saying that? or
2: Making an inference. Okay. I don't know that for real, but...
1: Me neither. I was asking. I thought you would know.
2: I mean, like, you just kind of waste away from it, I think. Because there weren't really, like, cures then. There wasn't good medicine. Right. When it was called consumption. You get consumed up by it. Okay. I'm going to look it up.
1: (laughs) The mother, Mary Eliza, was the first to die of the disease, followed in 1884 by their eldest daughter, Mary Olive, according to her gravestone. Um, sorry, I put a period there and I didn't mean to. <laughs> F- followed in 1884 by their eldest daughter, Mary Olive, according to her gravestone. There we go.
2: Okay, I was actually right. Weight loss and the so-called wasting away associated with tuberculosis led to the popular 19th century name of consumption as the disease was seen to be consuming the individual.
1: That's good. (laughs) In
2: 1891, daughter... That was an interesting response to that.
1: (laughs) Daughter Mercy and son Edwin also contracted the disease. Friends and neighbors of the family believe that one of the dead family members was a vampire Although they did not use that name and had caused Edwin's illness, this was in accordance with th- uh, threads of the contemporary folklore which linked multiple deaths to multiple deaths in one family to undead activity. Consumption was a poorly understood condition at the time and the subject of much superstition. George Brown was persuaded to give permission to exhume several bodies of a family members, um, villagers, the local doctor, and a newspaper reporter exhumed the bodies on March 17th, 1892, and the bodies of both Mary and Mary Olive were had exhibited the expected level of decompos- de- de- decomposition. So they were thought not to be the cause. However, the body of Mercy Brown exhibited almost no decomposition and still had blood in her heart. Hmm. This was taken as a sign that the young woman was undead and the agent of young Edwin's condition. Her lack of decomposition was more likely due to her body being stored in freezer like conditions in an above ground crypt during the two months following her death. As superstition dictated, Mercy's heart and liver were burned and the ashes were mixed with water to create a tonic that was given to the sick Edwin to drink as an effort to resolve his illness and stop the influence of the undead.
2: Because they thought she was a vampire? That's yes. why they had to do that stuff?
1: Yep. Huh. Wild. So they, they were given to Edwin to cure him.
2: That's gross.
1: He died two months later.
2: You don't say.
1: What remained of Mercy's body was buried in the cemetery of the Baptist Church of, in Exeter after being desecrated. In the end, the father, George Brown, was one of the very few never to contract tuberculosis, living until 1922, just long enough to see bacteriologists Albert Calmet and Camille Guirin discover the BCG vaccine, which was widely used to treat and cure tuberculosis. You know, you would think that if, if the father was the only one not to contract tuberculosis, that they would assume he was the vampire?
2: Yeah, that's weird. But what do we know?
1: Yeah. Anyway, in California, uh, they've got the Dark Watchers. Have you ever heard of them?
2: No, but they sound scary.
1: Uh, The Dark Watchers, also known by early Spanish settlers as Los Vigilantes Oscuros, is a name given to a group of entities in California folklore reportedly seen observing travelers along the Santa Lucia Mountains. The Dark Watchers uh, are described as tall, sometimes giant-sized featureless dark silhouettes, often adorned with brimmed hats or walking sticks. They are most often reported to be seen in the hours around twilight and dawn. They are said to motionlessly watch travelers from the horizon along the Santa Lucia mountain range. And according to legend, no one has seen one up close, and if someone were to approach them, they disappear. Uh, While sometimes attributed to the Chumash people, who historically inhabited the central and southern coastal regions of California, nothing analogous to the legend appears to exist in their mythology. When Spanish settlers first moved into the area, they were said to have witnessed the Dark Watchers, whom they dubbed Los Vigilantes Oscuros. Illusions, hallucinations, or misinterpretation of natural stimulus brought on by exhaustion or isolation have been proposed by psychologists. Infrasound, which can be generated by wind, can cause feelings of uneasiness and anxiety in some people and is frequently connected to paranormal sightings. Um, so there's an optical illusion known as the Brocken Spectre. Um, so that's a plausible explanation for this whole legend of the Dark Watchers. Um... A Brocken specter is called a mountain specter and can occur in certain atmospheric conditions. When the sun is at a particular angle and the subject's shadow can be cast onto a cloud bank around them, creating the illusion of a large shadowy humanoid figure. Hmm. So I guess I give like the sun's behind you. Yeah. And it'll cast like you're like a projection of you. So that's kind of neat. Yeah. In Minnesota. You know what Minnesota is?
2: Do, do I know what Minnesota is? Yep. A state?
1: No, the monster. Oh, no. Would you like to take a guess?
2: I have no idea.
1: The Wendigo.
2: Ooh, those are scary. A
1: little bit. Uh, the Wendigo is a mythological creature or evil spirit originating from the folklore of the Plains and Great Lakes natives, as well as some of the First Nations. Uh, It is based in and around the East Coast forests of Canada, the Great Plains region of the United States, and the Great Lakes region of the United States and Canada, grouped in modern ethnology as speakers of Algonquin family languages. The Wendigo is often said to be a malevolent spirit, Sometimes depicted as a creature with human-like characteristics which possesses human beings, the Wendigo is said to invoke feelings of insatiable greed or hunger, and the desire to cannibalize other humans, and the propensity to commit murder in those that fall under its influence. In some representations, the Wendigo is described as a giant humanoid with the heart of ice, a foul stench, or sudden unse- uh, a sudden unseasonable chill might precede its approach. Possibly because of long-time identification by European-Americans with their own myths about werewolves, for example, as mentioned in the Jesuit relations. Um, Hollywood film representations often label human or beast hybrids featuring antlers or horns with the Wendigo name, but such animal features do not appear in the original indigenous stories. So.
2: Whenever we talk about that during the extravaganza. We need to bring Riley back in cuz I'm pretty sure she saw one.
1: Oh yeah, the not deer.
2: Remember? Yeah. We need yeah. to we need to get her to come tell that story. That's scary.
1: Riley, come tell the story. I know she's listening.
2: She does listen. So, yeah, that was actually terrifying.
1: Um, so in modern psychiatry, the Wendigo lends its name to a form of psychosis known as Wendigo psychosis, which is characterized by symptoms such as an intense craving for human flesh and an intense fear of becoming a cannibal. Wendigo psychosis is described as a culture-bound syndrome, um, and in some First Nations communities, other symptoms such as insatiable greed and destruction of the environment are also thought to be symptoms of Wendigo psychosis.
2: That's wild.
1: I think uh, like people always say like you're not supposed to say Skinwalker, you're not supposed to say Wendigo, because they'll like come after you.
2: Yeah, like if you're outside, I don't think you're supposed to say
1: those yeah. words. But I think that's actually just, like, you're not supposed to pronounce, like, the native word pronunciation of it.
2: Oh, I don't know. I need to look into it more. I'm not trying to take any chances here.
1: But, so the word actually appears in many Native American languages and has many alternative translations.
2: Don't say it.
1: Um, the source of the English word is the Ojibwe word for, uh, it's Windigo, and in the Cree language, it's Witty Cow.
2: Are these the words you're not supposed to say?
1: Also translated Wetiko.
2: Could you stop, please?
1: In the other translations include... Shane. Wendy Goo.
2: Stop! (laughs) Stop. We're not doing this enough.
1: So there's there's like 20 words here. Go
2: ahead and fast forward.
1: There's like 20 words that are like all the exact same, um, pretty much, that are all like different pronunciations of it. I uh, will say this. The, so the proto I'm
2: scared now.
1: The proto algonquin term has been reconstructed as uh when no. no so no. hang on. It's when tekowah," which may have meant owl. Okay. So it's just an owl. Um, this gets first place in this section for obvious reasons, but we'll be doing a full episode on it in our extravaganza. So can't wait for that. Riley, come tell the story.
2: Riley, come tell the story.
1: So we're getting an oddities.
2: Was this the last category? Or is N- there one, there's one more
1: after? No. There's, hang on. There's animal men. Did I ever say animal men? I don't think so. The, I forgot to put it in. We're, there's another, it's called animal men. There's another <laughs> section, and nobody knew until now. A Even
2: surprise! Oddities.
1: I knew it was coming. I'm getting into that later. But anyway. So. The oddities. The first one is in Illinois. It's the infield horror or the infield monster. Um, So about 10 p.m. on the night of April 25th, 1973, Henry McDaniel heard a scratching sound at his front door. He looked out and saw something that he thought might be a bear. And he took a gun and a flashlight Then he headed outside into a strong wind and saw the creature between two rose bushes. He said, it had three legs on it, a short body with two little short arms, and two pink eyes as big as flashlights. It stood four and a half feet tall and was grayish colored. He added, later, it was almost like a human body. McDaniel fired four shots at the creature, one shot hitting it and causing it to make a hiss, much like a wildcat's before fleeing towards nearby railway embankment, covering 50 feet in three jumps. McDaniel called the local authorities who discovered footprints in the soft earth near the house, which McDaniel described as dog-like in shape with six toe pads, and the police considered McDaniel to be a rational uh, person and sober in his reporting of the incident. In later press interview, McDaniel said, quote, If they do find it, they will find more than one, and they won't uh, be from this planet. I can tell you that. Which doesn't really sound very rational to me. No. Anyway, investigators interviewing nearby residents were told that Greg Gar... Greg... Ger, Greg Garrett, a 10-year-old neighbor... Garrett of, is
2: what you were struggling with there?
1: Stop. <laughs> He's a 10-year-old neighbor of McDaniel, claimed to have encountered the creature half hour a half hour before McDaniel did, and that the creature had stepped on his feet, tearing his tennis shoes to shreds. The boy later told Western Illinois University researchers that his report was a hoax to tease Mr. McDaniel and to have fun with an out-of-town newsman. So, I wish I had the soundbite here that was like, wouldn't you like to know, weather boy?
2: (laughs) That would have been good.
1: (laughs) Uh, Two weeks later, on May 6th, McDaniel called the radio station WWKI, claiming to have seen the creature again at 3 a.m. that morning. And it, was nego- uh, it was negotiating the trestles of the railroad tracks near his home, and McDaniel said, "I saw something moving out on the railroad track, and there it stood. I didn't shoot at it or anything. It started down. It started on down the railroad track. It wasn't in a hurry or anything." A search party, including WWKI's news director Rick Rainbow, what a name, explored the area later that day and reported observing an ape-like creature standing on an abandoned building near McDaniel's house. They claimed to have made a recording of the creature's cries and fired a shot at it before it fled. Cryptozoologist Lauren Coleman investigated the case and the sound recording. Two days later, after McDaniel was interviewed on a local radio, a local press reported that the police were called to investigate reports of gunfire and arrested five young men from out of town who had come to the infield in order to photograph the creature. Carrying shotguns and rifles, Quote unquote, for protection, the men having claimed to have sighted the creature, the White County Sheriff mi- dismissed reports of this, quote unquote, mo- monster hunting expedition as an exaggeration, saying that the men were just out drinking and raising hell. <laughs> Aren't we all? Uh, mentioning the monster only briefly during questioning, the men were charged with hunting violations. <laughs> After That's good. The, after the arrest of the five men who had arrived to hunt the creature, residents of Enfield expressed fears that the press coverage would lead to further monster hunters who might inadvertently shoot citizens or livestock. It was suggested that the creature may have been a kangaroo escaped what? from a nearby zoo, which would explain the three legs description, as the tails of kangaroos look like a third leg. McDaniel was adamant that the creature wasn't no kangaroo. <laughs> having owned such a creature as a pet while on military service in Australia. (laughs) And noting that kangaroos have narrow faces and tracks that leave claw marks. Following media coverage of the creature, an Ohio man contacted a local newspaper stating that the creature may have been his pet kangaroo, Macy, who had been lost or stolen a year previously. Which honestly...
2: Why does everyone have kangaroos?
1: I have no idea. (laughs) There's like a there's like a common statistic that like um like there's more tigers in captivity than there are th- there's more tigers in captivity in Texas than there are in the entire wilds of the entire world. Something like that.
2: That's unreal.
1: And that might be an old statistic that. that like a comedian said or something, but it's like
2: Oh, yeah, that might have been a joke.
1: I believe that I think I think in in Florida you're allowed to have tigers, and I think in Texas you're allowed. And I, I think mean, like, didn't Tiger King States.
2: have like a ridiculous amount of tigers? Yeah, like a hundred some.
1: And Carol Baskin. <laughs> uh, in 1978, researchers at Western Illinois University, headed by David L. Miller, investigated and analyzed the incident, publishing it as a case study in social contagion the researchers found there were no more than three firsthand reports that had subsequently been exaggerated by news stories and local gossip into an epidemic. Hmm. So once again, somebody saw something and the news was like, it's outrageous. And then it blew up into this whole big thing. So, but also I'll say this, the, the fact that they're like, oh, it's probably just this regular animal, and then some guy was like, oh, it be my kangaroo, makes yeah. me, just like the conspiracy brain in me, be like, so the government paid that guy to say it was his kangaroo you when it was actually problems. an alien. So, I don't know. <laughs> anyway, yeah, and if I, like, if my car drives off a bridge this week, you're going to feel really bad about that comment, because then it would be the government. Yeah. I'm going to purposely drive my car off a bridge.
2: Don't do <laughs> I'm that. Joking. Cut that out. <laughs>
1: Um, in Massachusetts, they've got the Dover Demon.
2: Oh, scary.
1: 17-year-old William Bill Bartlett claimed that while driving on April 21st, 1977, he saw a large-eyed creature with tendril-like fingers and glowing eyes on top of a broken stone wall on Farm Street in Dover, Massachusetts. 15-year-old John Baxter reported seeing a similar creature on Miller Hill Road the same evening. Another 15-year-old boy, Abby Brabham, claimed to have seen the creature the following night on Springdale Avenue. The teenagers all drew sketches of the alleged creature, Bartlett wrote on his sketch. I, Bill Bartlett, swear on a stack of Bibles that I saw this creature. According to the Boston Globe, the locations of the sightings plotted on a map lay in a straight line over two miles. Huh. Some suggested that the creature may have been a foal or a moose calf. Joe Nickel, remember that guy, the skeptic guy, mm-hmm. believes the creature was likely a snowy owl based on size and plumage, which would have reflected in yellow headlights of older cars as the peach color described by Bartlett, So, um. the, or the eyes would have.
2: I feel like I'm a believer on this one. I believe Uh, them. That they saw something.
1: Maybe. In addition to the long spindly arms and fingers, the supposed creature could be the partially opened wings and the splayed feathers of the wingtips of a snowy owl. And the police told the Associated Press that creatures reported by the teenagers were probably nothing more than a school vacation hoax.
2: No, I feel like I'm a believer on this one. I've seen some weird stuff out there
1: before. Could have been an owl.
2: Could have been, but I don't know.
1: Maybe. In Tennessee, there's the Tennessee Wild Man.
2: Sounds like a Florida man.
1: <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I
2: guess it's so. Like that. Just sounds like it's going to be the same kind of stories.
1: Yeah. I've, I feel like, I don't know, for like a funny episode, I want to do like the most, like the weirdest Florida man stories, but.
2: Yeah.
1: Or like the creepiest.
2: Have you ever seen the. The thing where you like type in your birthday and then put Florida Man after it and see what happened, what Florida Man did on your birthday?
1: We're going to do that after the podcast.
2: We'll do it at the end.
1: (laughs) Uh, The origins of the Tennessee Wildman go way back to the 1800s in McNary County, Tennessee. One of the stories is that a circus freak showman somehow captured the beast and put him on display in a cage to where everyone can see him for exploitation until it finally broke free. The description of the Tennessee Wildman is much similar in appearance to a Sasquatch, but only more human. He supposedly has either dark gray hair or dark ginger hair, is about seven feet tall, and is always accompanied with piercing red eyes. It is known to spout out disturbing war cries that can frighten anyone that hears it and has a horrible smell that's reminiscent to the skunk ape. It's very aggressive in behavior and could possibly be the arch-enemy of the Sasquatch, ironically often fighting for territory reasons.
2: I never thought of Sasquatch having an enemy. Me neither. Huh.
1: So, it is unlikely that the Tennessee wild man has lived almost 150 years in the Tennessee mountains. Uh, it may be assumed then that more than one of these creatures exist, or the creature sighting in the Bee Cliffs area could be something else entirely. It was it wasn't only Tennessee that this creature was sighted since some reports also come from Kentucky. So there is actually a Kentucky wild man that uh, people say is like pretty much the exact same thing. Good. So in Kansas, there's, there's a creature called sinkhole Sam.
2: Sinkhole Sam. Yep. sounds like a cartoon character.
1: A little bit. Sinkhole Sam is a worm like creature said to inhabit a portion of the Inman Lake in Kansas known as the sinkhole. It is also known as the foopengurkle, though there's no solid explanation of what that might have meant. Locals theorize that Sam actually is a prehistoric creature that lived in flooded underground caverns and is somehow led into the lake. The first known account of the beast came from two men fishing at the sinkhole when they saw the creature. Following this event, Albert Newfield and George uh, Regier also claimed to have seen the creature, claiming that it was approximately 15 feet in length and as round as an automobile tire. Sightings of the creature, or sightings of the creature, have stopped over the years, leaving us to wonder if the creature died, or has gone back into the caverns from whence it came. A similar creature has been reported about 50 miles south of Inman at the Kingman State Lake. The state lake, while not naturally a not a naturally occurring lake, was formed from a naturally occurring marsh and is located next to the Niniska River. Both in the early 1900s and the late 1960s, several accounts of a large snake were reported. Eyewitness accounts of the snake's size vary. Some have said that it's the size of a large python, and others have said that its girth is so large that even a tractor could not run it over. In the late 60s, a large search for this a uh, big snake was conducted, but no snake other than the known native species were found. The creature has never been given a proper name, however. Some believe this creature to be the same creature of the same species as Sequel Sam. Over time, reports of such a snake have greatly diminished. However, other cryptids such as the Mothman, the Bigfoot, and a mysterious figure in a trench coat have also been reported at Kingman State Lake. Well, so I bet the trench coat a lot of things. is... The Takuhi. Oh.
2: Has
1: a top hat, too.
2: I died when I saw that picture you posted of him. Yeah. That cracked me up.
1: Um, I didn't know that Mothman had been sighted in Kansas. So.
2: I didn't either. Same Mothman?
1: Probably. Or, like, his brother. I don't know. Yeah. You think he travels for business?
2: Um, we'll talk about it in the extravaganza.
1: Maybe. <laughs> in New Hampshire... Have you ever heard of the Woods Devils? Nope. The Woods Devils could either be a single Bigfoot or more likely a group of them that have roamed the woodlands and hills of Coos County since the 1930s. These skinny and Sasquatch-like creatures are described as being tall at around 7 feet, uh, uh, seven to 9 feet and have a shaggy tan-slash-gray hair. An unusual trait, slightly similar to the behavior of the hide-behind, or even the whirling wimpus, is that this Bigfoot uses the trees to hide. It is said that these creatures will hide behind a tree when, the human is, when a human is coming, and stay behind that tree until the coast is clear. If there is no cover to hide behind the woods, Devil will stand perfectly still. Outdoorsmen, hikers, and others alike have described hearing the screams of these creatures echoing the hollows of Coos County. It isn't exactly known for sure what the woods devils are. Um, an old lumberjack tells of fearsome critters. Uh, tell of this creature, um, and people aren't sure if it's just an actual subspecies of Bigfoot or not. And these mysterious creatures are um, might not be Bigfoots at all, but they might be their own species entirely. So these could have gone, I guess, in the Bigfoot uh, section, but they're. They're a lot more similar to the hide behind, I think, which puts them in the the paranormal category. Yeah. Because the hide behind will hide, and then he gets you. And
2: then he gets you.
1: Yeah. So.
2: <laughs> That's fair.
1: In Pennsylvania, you know what Pennsylvania's is? Um, it's hmm. a cute one that you like.
2: A cute one that I like? Yep. Uh, Give me a hint.
1: It starts with an S. I don't
0: know.
1: The squonk.
0: The squonk.
1: <laughs> yep. The first written account of the squonk was from the 1910 book *Fearsome Creatures of the Lumberwoods*. His provenance was attested in the next written iteration in the 1939 book *Fearsome Critters*. This book suggested that creatures that the creatures had migrated from desert swamps to finally uh, from deserts to swamps, to finally settle in Pennsylvania. As logging camps were continuously moving in the early 20th century, this could explain the purported creature's migration to Pennsylvania. Unlike many mythological creatures, the supposed physical characteristics of the squonk remain unchanged from the original written account, which states, this is a quote from the, that 1910 book, Fearsome Creatures of the Lumberwoods, and this is the, the description, the squonk is of a very retiring disposition. Generally traveling about at twilight and dusk, because of its misfitting skin, which is covered with warts and moles, it is always unhappy. Hunters who are good at tracking are able to follow a squonk by its tear-stained trail, for the animal weeps constantly. When cornered and escape seems impossible, or when surprised and frightened, It may even dissolve itself in tears.
2: Okay, like the part about it, crying is really sad, but I like to picture it as just being a little grumpy thing. Not like a weeping thing, just like, it's just grumpy.
1: Like I'm a squonk? Yeah. (laughs) I'm not that grumpy.
2: Yeah, you're a big grump. I'm
1: big? (laughs) Jeez.
2: Yeah, I mean, if it's like crying all the time, that is pretty sad, so I just... Pretend that part's not a part of the story. It's just a little grumpy thing that travels through the woods at night.
1: So, later retellings include that squonks were slowest on moonlit nights as they tried to avoid uh, seeing their ugly appearance in any illuminated bodies of water. In addition to warts and moles, the creatures were given webbed toes on their left feet. The given species taxonomy of the creature... This is another... This is another Latin word. lacrima corpus dissolvens, is (laughs) made up of the Latin tear, body, and dissolve. These refer to its supposed ability to dissolve when captured. So in Connecticut, they've got uh, the melon heads. Have you heard of those? No. Several of the legends of the melon heads can be found in Michigan, Ohio, and other states. But in Connecticut, according to one variation of the myth, Fairfield County was the location of an asylum for the criminally insane that burned down in the fall of 1960, resulting in the death of all of the staff, most of the patients with 10 to 20 inmates unaccounted for, supposedly having survived and escaped into the woods. The legend states that the melonhead's appearance is the result of them having resorted to cannibalism in order to survive the harsh winters of the region and to inbreeding which turn in turn cause them to develop hydrocephalus. Some retellings of this version substitute the asylum for prison with places of business or campgrounds. The inmates slash patients with employees, staff, or campgoers, uh, individual variations will modify what town these individuals were originally from and where they end up. Hmm. 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 Where have we heard that before? <laughs> so, according to the second variation, melonheads are descendants of a colonial-era family from Shelton Trumbull who were banished after accusations of witchcraft uh, were made against them, causing them to retreat into the woods. As with the first version of this legend, the variation attributes the appearance of the melonheads to inbreeding— and Melonheads allegedly prey upon humans who wander into their territory. Like the first version, individual retellings will modify what town the family was originally from and where they ended up. Stories about deformed country people who keep to themselves are common in legends. While the legend of the Melonheads is more widely told throughout southwest Connecticut, one of several other similar legends of deformed or mutated humans can be found in various locations of Fairfield and New Haven County. The legends have been told in overlapping communities where some individuals would tell versions of one legend alongside other individuals who would tell versions of another legend. Over time, the overlapping of oral tradition may have allowed the cross contribution of elements to each other. So
2: that was a sad one.
1: Yeah, a little bit in Hawaii. There's the mini Hune. Have you heard of that? Mm Mm-mm. Ooh. Well, you're going to like it. Okay. Minahune are a mythological race of dwarf people in Hawaiian tradition who are said to live in deep forests and hidden valleys of the Hawaiian Islands, hidden and far away from human settlements. The Minahune are described as superb craftspeople. They built the temples, fish ponds, roads, canoes, and houses. Some of these structures that Hawaiian folklore attributed to the Minahune still exist, They are said to have lived in Hawaii before settlers arrived from Polynesia many centuries ago. Their favorite food is the mai, which is a banana, and they also like fish. Legend has it that the Minahune only appear during the night hours to build masterpieces, but if they fail to complete their work in the length of the night, they will leave it unoccupied. No one but their children and humans connected to them can see the Minahune. Uh, some early scholars hypothesized that there was a first settlement of Hawaii by settlers from the Marquesas Islands, and a second from Tahiti. The Tahitian settlers oppressed the commoners, the Manahune (in the Tahitian language), who fled to the mountains and were called Manahune, um, or sorry, Minahune. Proponents of this hypothesis point to an 1820 census of um, of Kauai. Is how you pronounce that by um Kaumali Kaumali? Oh, my I'm not gosh. like I feel so bad about like mispronouncing all of it like people's names, yeah. Number one, but also like
2: important things,
1: no, like other languages' names, yeah, because they're hard. But um, so this census listed 65 people as Minahune. So, huh. folklorist uh, Catherine uh, Lumala believes that the legends of the Minahune are a post-European contact mythology created by adaptation of the term Manahune which by the time of the colonization of the Hawaiian Islands by Europeans had acquired a meaning of lowly people or low social status hmm. and not a diminutive stature to... Um, so, they, they kind of took the legend of this, like the Minnehune, or took that word, and applied it to the European legends of brownies. And brownies are Scottish legends of household elves or spirits known as hobgoblins. And it's claimed that Minnehune are not mentioned in pre-contact mythology, but that is unproven since it was clearly an oral mythology. But I would say that this is probably... It's probably true that, uh, so they have this census that says that the these people of low social status that were oppressed fled to the mountains, and they have 65 people listed as the Minahune, which means people of low social status. Um, hmm. And so I would say that that's probably more so what it is, and they just kind of made up this mythology using the word and Europeans kind of spread it when they mm. colonized the area, which is kind of sad. But
2: yeah, that is sad.
1: Anyway, it's a it's a good story, and I want to do like a full episode on it because the stories behind what the Minnehaha are like responsible for, like what they'll do for people, yeah, is actually pretty interesting.
2: Yeah, we should definitely do that then.
1: Um, they did do actually. So they there's a story of like the fishing pond, and like they built this big, like this famous. Fishing pond oh, cool. or whatever in Hawaii, but it's just, I don't really want to get into the whole story.
2: Right now. <laughs> the episode,
1: yeah. So, in Colorado, do you, so this is, this is the like a real oddball for a monster. In Colorado, they have the slide rock boulder. Do you, do you even want to hazard a guess at what that is?
2: The slide rock boulder?
1: Yeah. Bol- bolter, not Bol- boulder. Bolter. Yeah.
2: Um, something that causes rock slides mischievously.
1: That's kind of close. <laughs> um, so the slide rock, slide rock bolter is a bizarre creature and fearsome critter recounted by the lumberjacks of North America during the 19th and early 20th centuries. It is believed to live in the mountains of Colorado but only on mountains where the slope is at an angle greater than 45 degrees. It has an immense head, small eyes, and a large mouth, which is similar to a sculpin. Its tail ends in a fluke like a dolphin with enormous grab hooks. The slide rock bolter is said to have caused great uneasiness among tourists visiting the mountains of Colorado. This fearsome animal uses the grab hooks on its divided tail to latch onto the crest of a mountain or ridge. will often remain motionless for days at a time, watching the gulch below for tourists or any other hapless creatures. Once it spots its prey, it will lift its tail to release its hold on the crest as gravity sends it barreling downhill. It drills grease from the corners of its mouth to increase the speed of its huge body. The bolter scoops its victims into its mouth as it slides down. The accumulated speed will carry the bolter up the next slope where it will once again grasp the ridge with its tail and weight.
2: I can barely visualize that. (laughs) There was a lot going on.
1: Whole parties of tourists are reported to have been gulped down at once. The animal is a menace not only to tourists, but to the (laughs) forest as well. What? It's just,
2: the animal is a menace. (laughs) That's just funny.
1: Many spruce-covered slopes have been rendered wastelands by the bolter as it knocks down the trees uh, by their roots or mows them down as if with a scythe. A forest ranger, whose district included the rough county between Ophir Peaks and Lizard Head, conceived the bold idea of deceiving a slide rock bolter to slide down to its own destruction. A dummy tourist was outfitted with a plaid Norfolk jacket, knee breeches, and a guidebook to Colorado. The dummy was filled with powder and and fulminate caps and posed in a conspicuous place. The next day, the false taurus attracted the attention of a bolter that had been hanging for days on the slope of Lizard Head. The creature attacked. The resulting explosion flattened half the buildings in Rico, which were never rebuilt. The remains of the unfortunate bolter made many a meal for the local buzzards that summer. So they blew it up.
2: Are there any, like, pictures of this thing?
1: Not real ones. Man. But I can show you, like, a, an <laughs> artist's rendering of it. It's so stupid looking. Like,
2: that's a great story, but because of the way it's told, there would, if it was real, there would absolutely be pictures of it.
1: Yeah, you would think. So, the, I'll images. This is, like, kind of what we're talking about.
2: Oh, so, it looks horrible.
1: <laughs> yeah, so you can see, and I'll post these to our Instagram too. You can see where it's hanging on to the top of a mountain by its tail, and then it it has a big mouth with teeth, and it slides down, and it's gonna, it's gonna get you. So
2: <laughs> it gets you.
1: But uh, I think this was like a myth or something. For well, I mean, I, I guess obviously not. Like I think, but. It's obviously got to be some kind of a myth that was passed down for, like, Lumberjacks just as, like, a story to tell. Yeah. But about, like, rock slides.
2: Yeah, that makes sense.
1: Or mudslides or something like that. Mm -hmm. So, anyway. We're going on to our last section. This is Animal Men. And these are... So, these are a few things that didn't really fit. They don't fit in the animal category. They don't fit in the other sections. And so, I had to make an Animal Men section. Okay. Okay. And these are going to be our last, like, four, three or four. Gotcha. So, in Vermont, there's the Northfield Pigman.
2: I've heard of this one.
1: So, Sam Harris, also known as the Pigman of Northfield, is the legend of a boy at 17 that went missing in the hills of Northfield, Vermont, in 1951. So, Sam Harris is often described as being covered in white hair and wears the face of a pig it's unknown if the pigman is Sam Harris, or the beast that ate Sam Harris, so the monster could actually be some sort of cannibalistic Bigfoot. Yeah. The night before Halloween, October 30th, 1951, Sam set out with eggs in hand for what he called Picket Night, a night of mischief. The next morning when his parents awoke and found him missing, this set off a huge search party that lasted weeks and involved hundreds of locals over hundreds of square miles, although never found... It is said that uh is said that there has been a sighting of Sam who some say became possessed by the devil himself that fateful night. Sam Harris is known to slaughter pigs, eat their entrails, hollow out the pig's head and wear it over himself while terrorizing the New England town locals.
2: That's horrendous.
1: Sam supposedly still haunts the hills surrounding Devil's Washbowl. Rumor has it he lies with the pigs and is also known for bestiality spawning half-man, half-pig offspring. Years later, some high school kids were out drinking behind the school one night during a dance when this thing came walking out of the woods on two human legs. It was naked, covered in white hair, and was wearing a hollowed-out pig's head like some grotesque mask. So this seems just like a local legend made to scare kids, and a lot of hoaxes probably surround this. I'm sure people dress up like every year as the pig man.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, and also, just probably just a bunch of kids saying they saw it just to scare each other. Um, and this only gets beaten out by the next one um, mm. called The Lizard Man of Scape or Swamp because of this ridiculous story that I'm about to tell <laughs>
2: you. Okay.
1: So, um, in the folklore of Lee County, South Carolina, The Lizard Man of Scape or Swamp also known as the Man of Lee County. He is an entity said to inhabit the swampland of the region, first mentioned in the late 1980s. The reported sightings and damage attributed to the creature yielded a significant amount of newspaper, radio, and television publicity. On June 14, 1988, the Lee County Sheriff's Office investigated a report of a car damaged overnight while parked at a home in the area of Browntown outside of Bishopville, South Carolina on the edges of the skateboard swamp. Um, The car reportedly had tooth marks. By the way, I don't remember if I said this whenever I started this one, but this is from South Carolina, by the way. Okay. So, uh, the car reportedly had tooth marks and scratches with hair and muddy footprints left behind. Sheriff Liston Truesdale noted this was the start of various claims that eventually coalesced into a story about a lizard man in the swamp Prompted by the news of vehicle damage, 17-year-old local Christopher Davis reported to the sheriff that his car was damaged by a creature he described as green, wet-like, about 7 feet tall, and had three fingers, red eyes, skin like a lizard, snake-like scales, etc. Two weeks prior. According to Davis, he was driving home from working the night shift at a fast food restaurant when his car got a flat tire. After fixing it, he saw a creature walking toward him. Davis got in his car and began to drive, but the creature was soon on top of the car. He applied the brakes, causing the creature to roll off of the car, giving Davis enough time to escape. Coverage by newspapers and media resulted in increased attention for his claims. Local businesses began selling Lizard man t-shirts. <laughs> and the local Chamber of Commerce encouraged the media attention as good for the community.
2: That's so funny. They started selling merch right away. Right away. I love that. <laughs> uh,
1: Professor of Religious Studies Joseph P. Laycock described the media-friendly and subsequent cult appreciation for this and other similar claims as following a predictable chain of events, a strange sighting, media attention, more sightings, and then followed by visits from curious tourists and monster hunters. Skeptical investigator Ben Radford states that the details of Chris Davis's story do not hold up under scrutiny. Sheriff Truesdale stated that Davis's story was never wavered but Radford writes that this isn't true. Over weeks and months, repeated tellings and details changed many times from having scales to the creature being packed with mud, how far away Davis was from the creature when he first saw it, and whether or not it attacked the car. Radford questioned how Davis was able to see details of a lizard-man creature at 2am when there was no lighting nearby in a heavily wooded area when the moon was not bright. If, If this was an aggressive creature, why are there no other credible sightings? According to Radford, the timing of Davis' story didn't make sense. If Davis saw the creature in the shadows while he was closing the trunk of his car, Davis still had to get back into the car and take off. Yet Davis claims that the creature was so fast, it called up to the car when he was doing 40 miles an hour. Reports vary with the source that Davis told the police about the attack two more, or two or more weeks later. After investigating... Radford states that the polygraph test administered to Davis may have been a publicity stunt by Southern Marketing Incorporated, a company, quote-unquote, arranging personal appearances for Davis. Another curious issue is that there are no photographs of the damage to Davis's car, which provide some evidence that something happened. Newspaper accounts give various descriptions of the damage to the car and one local newspaper. Davis is quoted as saying he escaped with no more than a scratch on his fender. Radford states that Davis's report is quite literally incredible, riddled with both implausibilities and impossibilities. It may be insincere or it may be a hoax, but in either event, no hard evidence of the creature has ever been found. Investigator Alicia Lutz has suggested that what Davis saw that night was actually a local butterbean farmer, Lucius Elmore, <laughs> who was guarding his shed that night after recent thefts. Excuse me. Elmore claimed he heard a car tire blow out, thinking it was thieves, walked out to the road to confront them. Elmore said when Davis saw him, he screamed and took off. <laughs> so.
2: Oh my gosh.
1: So, not only is this like, I don't know, like he got scared of something in the dark and yeah. ran away. But he was like made of this whole story of like, it's the lizard man. And it turns out it's a bean farmer.
2: <laughs> it was a neighbor.
1: So... All right, don't hate me, okay.
0: Mm. Don't, please don't hate me. Mm. The
1: second place for the for the animal men is from West Virginia.
2: Shane, we are at the 49th story, and you're going to put us in second place.
1: Wait until you hear first place.
2: Okay.
1: (laughs) I didn't do it. I'm
2: skeptical.
1: I didn't want to do it because I wanted to. I did it because I really believe in my heart it deserves it.
2: All right. As long as this is integrity.
1: In West Virginia folklore, the Mothman is a humanoid creature.
2: You're not putting Mothman as number one. You know how seen, I feel about Mothman. I know. It was so bad. Oh
1: my gosh. She's reportedly seen in the Point Pleasant area from November 15th, 1966 to December 15th, 1967. The first newspaper report was published in the Point Pleasant Register, dated November 16th, 1966, titled, Couples See Man-Sized Bird, Creature Something. The national press soon picked up the report's and helped spread the story across the United States. The source of the legend is believed to have originated from sightings told out of migration, sightings of out-of-migration sandhill cranes or herons. The creature was introduced to a wider audience by Gray Barker in 1970, and was later popularized by John Keel in his 1975 book, The Mothman Prophecies, claiming that there were paranormal events related to the sightings and a connection to the collapse of the Silver Bridge, The book was later adapted into a 2002 film starring Richard Gere. On November 15, 1966, two young couples from Point Pleasant, Roger and Linda Scarberry and Steve and Mary Mallette, told police that they had seen a large white creature whose eyes glowed red standing at the side of the road near the TNT area, the site of a former World War II munitions plant. Linda Scarberry described it as a slender, muscular man, about seven feet tall, with white wings, and said that she was unable to discern its face due to the hypnotic effect of its eyes. Distressed witnesses drove away at high speed and said that the creature flew after their car, making a screeching sound, and it pursued them as far as Point Pleasant city limits. And I'm not going to go into too much detail on this one because you, Anna, are going to do like a full deep dive and like a week or something.
2: Yeah. And I'll say that he's number one.
1: Yeah, he's number one. <laughs> so <laughs> the Mothman's real name is Schmidt Werben Jägerman Jensen. <laughs> he,
2: he was number, number one. one.
1: <laughs> so I'm not going to ruin it for you because you're going to do the deep dive, but just to give them the introduction. So listen here. Number, number one, for animal men. It's better impress. Now listen, I will say, I will say out of standard cryptids, right? Your standard garden variety cryptids. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't say that. That sounds like I'm demeaning it. <laughs> but I'm saying that out of the like the most famous cryptids, like the ones that you could just name off the top of your head, Mothman's probably up there number one. Yeah, no doubt. So like it'd be close competition. Mothman or Bigfoot. And Bigfoot only competes because of like the huge widespread. Everyone has a story about it.
2: Yeah, I like Bigfoot too. That's fine.
1: But number one for animal men is in Ohio. The the Loveland Frogmen. If a frog had pockets, it'd carry rocks to know it's
2: like. I want to be mad at you, but you're making me laugh.
1: In Ohio folklore, the Loveland Frog, also known as the Loveland Frog Man or Loveland Lizard, is a legendary humanoid frog described as standing roughly four feet tall, allegedly spotted in Loveland, Ohio. In 1972, the Loveland Frog legend gained renewed attention when a Loveland police officer reported to a colleague that he had seen an animal consistent with the descriptions of the frogman. After a reported sighting in 2016, the second officer called the news station and reported that he had shot and killed the same creature. Sorry. Not 2016. Shoot. I wrote it wrong.
0: I was
2: like, that's Uh, really recent.
1: (laughs) This was, I was finishing all of my research at like, like, I don't know, midnight? Yeah. (laughs) Not this most recent midnight but it was when
2: you prepared yeah, yeah.
1: so i was I like go through and like copy and paste like blips of things and like piece them together into real sentences
2: <laughs> <laughs> so when when did this happen do you remember <laughs> not 2016 <laughs> no
1: no uh, so we'll just move past it a uh, second officer called a news station to report that he had shot and killed the same creature some weeks after the 1972 incident and had identified it as a large iguana that was missing its tail. According to various legends, the creature was first sighted by a businessman or traveling salesman driving along an unnamed road late at night in 1955, with some versions of the story specifying the month of May. In one story, the driver was heading out of the Branch Hill neighborhood when he spotted three figures stood erect on their hind legs of the side road, each three to four feet tall with leathery skin and frog faces. In other versions of the story, the creatures were spotted under or over a poorly lit bridge, and one held a wand over its head that fired sprays of sparks. In 2023, the Love Land frog became the city's mascot, and the frog dressed as a frog, uh, or sorry, the frog dressed as a frog prince debuted at the city's annual Hearts of Fire weekend celebration, and appears at other city events. Now that is the star power that we're looking for in a cryptid. It? (laughs) I see the face you're giving me. So, listen. Listen, listen, listen. I have a confession to make. Okay. (laughs) The Loveland Frog is not really number one. It's Mothman. I just wanted to.
2: Shane, I was so hurt.
1: <laughs> I just wanted to, like, get you riled I up. I was a little like, bit.
2: that is hateful to pick a cryptid from Ohio and put it above the West Virginia Mothman. I was mad at you.
1: <laughs> Listen, so we we're going
2: to have words after this episode.
1: <laughs> the frogman is, is cute.
2: Yeah, it's a good story. story. It's a good story. But where and it belongs in second place.
1: He's the I don't even know if it's second place on it. <laughs> No, <gonna be>
2: really <laughs> it's a good story. Oh, it is.
1: I think the Lizard Man is.
2: I just was really, out. really unhappy yeah. that you were not putting Mothman in number one.
1: No. It it is. <laughs> I just wanted to make you mad.
2: Well, you did. Congrats. <laughs>
1: so I, I'll say this. Now, number one, Mothman's a good story.
2: Uh yeah.
1: But also. And you're going to do a deep dive on it, mm-hmm. but it's a West Virginia podcast. Yeah, we got to pick Mothman as number one. Yeah,
2: <laughs> In
1: whether the category.
2: I was going to say whether you think it or not, we think it, and we're putting it number one. <laughs> yeah, and and also. As much fun as we have made of some of these stories, like, this is so stupid, why would they believe that? That's obviously fake. I will be hearing none of that when we discuss Mothman. (laughs) You keep those thoughts to yourselves, people. I will hear none of it. (laughs) You can think it, but I will not hear it.
1: (laughs) The the whole time I was looking at the Ohio Loveland Frogman, I was like, I bet if he had a driver's license, he would sit in the left lane and, like, not get out of the way. (laughs) Like... Like every other driver from Ohio, I hope we don't have any listeners oh, we're from Ohio. Stuff.
2: My aunt lives in Ohio. Oh no, I love her very much.
1: <laughs> Is that Latrinda?
2: No, she lives in Somersville.
1: Okay, good. We like Latrinda.
2: Yeah, I like all my family. <laughs> I have a good that's family.
1: A, that's not true. It's my Hannah told me in private. <laughs> that's not true. <laughs> off all air, She told me you're it's just not true. straight
2: up <laughs> lying to everyone. <laughs> looked me in the eyes and told that lie (laughs) no my family's awesome Uh, my aunt that lives in Ohio is my mom's sister she's so nice
1: we love your mom too yeah we do yeah (laughs) anyway that's that's all of them
2: this was a fun episode I really enjoyed this
1: I like this more than the I like the stories of the Bigfoots and stuff yeah but there's a lot more information for the bigfoot sasquatches and stuff mm-hmm. there's a lot more information for the the sea monsters and stuff right that i just it's and all of them are the same it's like hey this is a ape like creature and we have a blurry photo of it and it's and they all they're all the same
2: yeah and this then this, this was good the, i like this the part the sea too.
1: monsters are all like hey there's a slimy thing in the lake and we have a blurry picture of it yeah <laughs> and and now we have like I, I don't, it's in a museum somewhere. Like, I, they're good stories. I just don't care as much about it as I do, like, the really oddball things.
2: Right. Like yeah.
1: Slide rock bolter. I'll also say this. This that,
2: was really good.
1: Um, The slide rock bolter is actually, I think, Olivia's favorite thing. So,
2: yeah, I, I hadn't heard of she, that before.
1: She's like Sorry. all excited about it. So, the picture you showed me was wild. Yeah. So, anyway. That's it. And we're going like slightly over. I'll have to cut some of our bathroom breaks out. Yeah. <laughs> we're going a little bit longer than what we really want to. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to end the episode. Good idea. Didn't we mean to look the thing up on the Florida thing?
2: Uh, yeah, but I changed my mind because I don't actually want to say my birthday on the podcast. Gina, <laughs> What?
1: <laughs> I'm not going to say my birthday. I'm going to.
2: Yeah, but then look- someone's going to look up the article you're about to read and figure out when your birthday is.
1: Does it matter?
2: I mean, do what they, you want. If they
1: know what my birthday is.
2: Do what you want.
1: I'm going to put your birthday in as mine. No! So, I'll look it up after. Yeah. Anyway.
2: That's a fun game you can play at home. Type in your birthday and follow it up with Florida Man and see what happens.
1: Thanks for listening to Leave, us five-star <laughs> <laughs> Leave Us a 5-star review. And... Leave Us a 5-star review on your preferred platform. Share our photo dumps. And share our, our Instagram posts and like them and give us all the things. And if you have an episode that you want us to do in the future, then please send us a message or comment it or something. And if you need anything for Halloween, click the link and you can go to all the Halloween deals. And be safe, drama home, watch out for the not deer. Bye. Bye.